Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday morning, and I'm going to... Today's podcast is uh, emerging out of a conversation by email I had with my good friend, Sam Finkel, who is uh, in Israel, in Yerushalayim, who's sponsoring this today. And uh, it came from a concatenation of uh, thoughts and events, and I'll tell you exactly what I mean. Today's, of course, is Parsha Savayetze, and so we have the story of Yaakov. There's all kinds of stuff in Parsha Savayetze, obviously, but my attention was drawn as a result of the conversation I had with my good friend to... Uh, the first part of the Sedra, I'm talking about when Yaakov runs away and ends up with having the dream with the ladder and so forth, which is a very heavy scene. And uh, I want to focus on that a bit because I think it's rather unclear. Let's get one thing straight. Yaakov is, so uh, let's put Rashi aside for a second. Rashi tries to deal in a very weird way, as we all know, with you know what's happening with Yaakov. Does he go to Choron? Uh, Does he come back? Does he stop in Yerushalayim? Is that where he has a dream with the letter? Or on the contrary, is it a place called Luz, as it says, Bethel? Bethel is different than Jerusalem, as we all know. Bethel is north of Jerusalem. Bethel became a famous uh, religious center for good and bad later in Jewish history. That's where Yeram ben Devot had the Eglasovs. In other words, it was obviously associated in popular mind with important religious uh, events. Could it be, uh, as some suggest, that that's where Yaakov had the dream and not in Jerusalem? Or do you say, no, it's in Har Maria, it was in Jerusalem. Or do you say the two places came together, Kfitzah Aderech, Rashi has a very unusual type of Kfitzah Aderech up here, where Jerusalem um, picked itself up and moved north to Bethel. So it's a very complicated kind of a, a story. But let me deconstruct it a little bit, or, or attempt to anyway, the best way I understand it. That's all I can ever do. And uh, Yaakov should be leaving from, from Hebron, right? Uh, that's where they hung out. They lived in Hebron. The whole story of, um, you know, Yaakov stealing the birthright and all the rest of it comes uh, events that took place in Hebron. And then the mother said, get out of here, Asa's going to kill you, and Yaakov runs away. That's what was in last week's Parsha. In spite of what I just said, it says, And when he actually sets on the actual journey northward, he starts in Beersheba. Now everybody listening to this knows, I know you know this, that Hebron is north of Beersheba, right? So, you know, why would Yaakov go north first turning south? Notice, if I'm going from Baltimore to New York, unless I'm a Polak, I'm not going to go to Richmond and then reach from Richmond to New York. I'm going straight from Baltimore to New York. So I'm going from Hebron to Choron, which is Mesopotamia, or as we call today Kurdistan, northern Syria, shall I say, northern Iraq. That's where Laban and his family come from. That's where the Abrahamic family had moved from Orkazdin way back when. Right, Avram started in Orkazim, but later they moved to Charm, as it says in the, what do you call it over there, in, in uh, you know, Noach over there, in Pashas Noach. And it was from Charm that uh, uh, Avram went to uh, Israel, and he returned back once, even to visit the families, I pointed out a couple weeks ago, I think. So Yaakov is uh, uh, going to a family, you know, to Lovan, basically. Um, now, 
Why is he going from Be'er Sheva? This is a classic Pashup shot question. And uh, I remember, if you look in the... So there's two ways of doing this. Now, there are more than two ways, but two ways that I think of offhand that I just look at right now. Uh, there's a Chazal that says, the Medish Rabbah, that says he went from Be'er Shel Shavua. I'm sure I must have mentioned this in some earlier year. There's always no gate of contemporary politics. And what that means is that Yaakov actually did not depart from Beersheba, but from Hebron. When he went Beersheba, it means that he did, he he fled from Hebron and he went there right away because he was afraid that he might be induced to make a treaty with the Palestinians the way Yitzhak had and the way Avram had. But Avimelech Melch Pishtim, king of the Pishtim, the Philistines, or the Philistines weren't there yet, so perhaps Palestinians is a better word. Okay? And Avram, you know, as we all know, made a, a bear show. He made, he made a shua with uh, Avimelech, and God was angry at that. According to the Rajvam, that's why God punished him with the uh, Akedah. Yitzhak also, in the last week's parasha, ended up finding himself uh, compelled to uh, make a treaty with the uh, with the Palestinians. The Chazal criticized this. And uh, uh, this was actually what Sam and I were talking about, because Sam is interested in Da Masha Toshiv, not Lapikores, Da Masha Toshiv, the Palestinian or the Jewish liberal, <laughs> the BDS. Because, you know, it uh, doesn't bother me, but a lot of people think people say, well, what, what right did the Jews have to Israel? They displaced the Palestinians, the whole Benny Morris narrative. And that's where he's coming from. And uh, the reason I agreed to do the podcast is because it actually turns out to be very interestingly connected with this week's Parsha. So one way is to say that the Yaakov uh, left uh, Meber Shava for nationalistic purposes. I mean that in the religious sense. God did not want him to make another treaty with the Palestinians and delay the uh, uh, settlement of the Jews. Another seven generations doesn't say that somewhere because Avram or Yitzhak made a treaty with the Palestinians. So therefore the Jews were not able to take over Israel in time. This would be a classic right-wing argument that you find in Israeli politics today. Don't make a treaty with the uh, West Bank and the PLO and so forth and so on. Because aside from everything else, totally separate from the question of whether or not it would be a smart move from the um, political point of view, could you trust them or not? Uh, totally separate from that, that, you know, that's the BB Netanyahu thing. There's the religious issue that how can you, you know, show lack of faith if God says this land is yours, as he does repeatedly to Avram Yitzhak. And in our part, he says it's the Yaakov in the dream, right? Because he says, I'm going to kill the whole Zarechot, and he's called Arzazel, right? Bakimose Seshua. So anyway, uh, isn't that what it says there? I think so. Anyway, anyway, so according to this, when it says he left from Beersheba, it really means Be'er Shel Shavua. He went from, from the pitfalls, not a well, but the pitfalls, of making a, a, an oath or a treaty with the Goyim. All right, that's one way of dealing with that. However, there's another school of thought in Chazal, and you may be surprised to hear this, maybe not, that goes as follows. Uh, what does it mean Yaakov went to Beersheba? Listen closely. There's a famous tradition in the uh, Seder Olam, which is the oldest chronology book, and everybody knows this who's ever learned. Well, I mean, Rashi talks about it in this week's parasha from Gemara McGill at the end of the Agatha, at the end of the first parak. I think many are familiar with that. Last page of the Agatha on Yudzayin and Miguel. And it said, the years don't work out by Yaakov. There's 14 years missing, and therefore Elamai 
Yaakov went to study in the Sheba Shem Beber before he departed for uh, Lovin. Okay? That itself is a very interesting uh, concept. It's basically the kind of notion, before you go out in the world, you need a year off in yeshiva, or in Yaakov's case, 14 years. Right? That, this is the idea we even have as a constituent element of orthodoxy in the, in the 21st century, in my lifetime, which is, like I said before, even the, even the very modern orthodox usually take off a year to go to, to, to yeshiva in Israel. Right? Even from a kippah through God's school. And the general idea is, like I said before, you know, you want to learn Shave Eber before you go to Lovin. That's the that's the, uh, the the theme, I guess, right? Those are very interesting. I'll say it again. Even some kid who's graduating from a good modern Orthodox school and is going again to Ivy League, but typically, you know, you go for a year to Israel. Why? Deepen your roots. In other words, the unspoken hope is hopefully this will make it, make it that when you go to college, you won't become unfrom. <laughs> so... Uh, that's a Lovan kind of art. Before Yaakov goes to encounter Lovan, to spend, uh, Yaakov was more from than that, so he spent 14 years by Shane Baber. So, okay, and that's how they account for the missing 14 years. Where exactly is, or was, the issue with Shane Baber? Putting, question, putting aside the question, is that an anachronistic expression, the Yeshiva Shane Baber, did they have a Yeshiva at that time? Well, obviously they didn't have a Yeshiva, like with a dormitory and, you know, Magad Shears and all the rest of it. But the concept of Yeshiva Shem Beber is a very well-known one, part of the Jewish lore. And uh, so what do we know about the Yeshiva Shem Beber? Very little. For example, were there two Yeshivas? Was the one Yeshiva headed by a guy named Shame, and another Yeshiva headed by a guy named Aver? Some learn that way. And even Shame is the son of Noach, so in other words, this, and Aver is like a great-grandson or something like this. And Avram Yitzhak Yaakov are great-great-grandsons of Aver. So it's all in the family kind of business. It's like someone today... Uh, leaving high school and say, I'm going to learn a yeshiva run by my cousin, by my great uncle or something like that. You know, you, you find that a lot. So is that what happened? Uh, could be. Or alternatively, is there a yeshiva called Shiva Shem Ve'ever? Yeshiva run by two people, the great-grandfather and the great-grandson, to which uh, other people went. Where was this place? So we're not really told. You know, and the, there's no chazal that says Shiva Shem Ve'ever was located in Vermont. You know what I mean? Like, where is it? Now, that's a good question. There is a marshal that suggests, but only populistically, this marshal over there by the story of, uh, in, in McGill, in Daf Yud Zion, uh, where you have the story of, of Yaakov hiding out in Sheba Shem Beber. He suggests, but I repeat, you know, only in a lumdish way, not through a tradition, that uh, Shem Beber is uh, in, in Beersheba. Okay? That's the way he wants to learn it. Which is just interesting. If that's the case, and I might be onto something, I'll tell you what I mean. By Yitzhi Yaakov and Beersheba, it goes like this. <laughs> Yaakov is living in Hebron. Then there's the incident with him and Esau. And Esau wants to kill him. So Yaakov has to flee. But before he flees, as per this tradition, he, uh, instead of leaving the country, he does something different. He uh, assumes a false identity and goes south, not far south, to Frumiville, to Beersheba, where is located the Shiva Shem Beaver. He lives there for 14 years, kind of hidden. Sayyidah won't find him. This is called Tamun. He says, 14 years is Tamun, but Shem Beaver. Tamun, you know, means hidden. So in other words, he had a very low profile, hoping that Asa wouldn't find him there. Because after all, let's face it, a guy like Asa isn't exactly hanging around the Shiva Shem Beaver. <laughs> and there he found the community. I have no idea. Nobody can how big the place was or anything like that. 
If you do your numbers, you'll see that Shane kind of died during that time, and Aver was the one left over. This is all in the Seder Olam, and then Aver died two years after Yaakov left Yeshua. But none of that's important. And so that would be the basis of the Chazal that goes like this. Yaakov goes and steals the birthright. The mother says, your, your brother's out to kill you. Flee to your brother. Flee to uh, Lauren. Uh, Asa probably figures that uh, Yaakov headed north to Lauren. Uh, let's put the story of Alifa on the side. Instead, Yaakov does something clever and from. Instead of heading north, where probably there are ambushes waiting for him, he heads south and assumes a different identity or a, a incognito and immerses himself, immures himself in Yeshiva Shem Be'ever, which, you know, is a good thing anyway, meaning he's learning up a storm. He was a Yoshe Bolim anyway. And as I said, probably is a kind of a shot in the arm to help him get ready for the experience with living in Lovan, because, you know, Yaakov grew up Yoshe Bolim with his father and mother. They were a very honest couple. Doesn't prepare you for life with Lovan. And maybe Yeshiva Shem Be'ever kind of did. I think Yaakovaneski or somebody, if I remember long ago, he said, Shane Baver, you know, they, that's the yeshiva that grew up after the flood. Therefore, they knew about uh, corrupt generations. It, it, like you say, this is a yeshiva that, that was better able to instruct you how to get along in a rough society out there. I don't know. These are all, as I, I got it to suggestions. Now, here's the thing. So then, that's why he flees by Shabbat. And he goes to Haran. And then, however, the Pesach says that he has a dream with the latter, which is this very portentous dream. Okay, Sean, what is the dream about? What's the shot with the dream? Oh, Cass, you just touched on a, like a major issue of Parshanut. Everybody and his brother has something to say with the dream. When it, and, and, and when and where it happened and all this sort of business. Uh, you know, is it on the way to Haran? Uh, or as Rashi tries to suggest in this very complicated Rashi, you know, he went to Kharan, then he came back, but he got to Basel, and then Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, popped up and moved itself over to Kharan, uh, to Basel, I mean, it's a very complicated business. But what, what's close with this dream? That he sees a ladder uh, leading to heaven, so it's a bridge between the earth and heaven, and he says, there's Shara Shemayim, which I've always been fascinated, because I'll tell you what I mean. Just uh, step back for a second and put on your Maimonides glasses. Now, not your Nachmanides glasses, but your Maimonides glasses. What does it mean, Shemayim? Shemayim is the heaven. What does the heaven mean? The sky? It doesn't mean the sky. The Shemayim is the metaphysical, right? The other world. It's two worlds. God created Shemayim, which is the metaphysical, but in the physical universe. Because it doesn't mean he created the heaven and earth, that the heaven is up there beyond the clouds. Okay, we're not dealing with Jack and the Beanstalk over here. So first created the so Yaakov says as a result of his dream, in which he sees now it's a dream. I read this not really happening, it's a dream. Uh he sees a ladder connecting uh the Sul and Musa, Now literally, like I say, if you want to talk Jack and the Beanstalk, so then you know it's a ladder sticking up into the clouds. I'm sure Rembrandt or somebody must have a painting in which you see just going into the cloud, but that completely misunderstands the meaning of the Pasuk. Zeshar Shamaya means this is the place of transcendence in which we see the Shar, the gateway, to lead out of the physical into the metaphysical. Whoa, that's very heavy. Now we're talking, you know, uh, Kabbalah, out of body experiences, Ari uh, Kaplan, all that stuff. And Ekonomi, we are. So, he has this dream. What is the purport of the dream? Now, 
Whenever you get to a complicated question of uh, Parshanut, I've said before in these podcasts, I'm sure, and elsewhere, go to the Barbanel if you're smart. You save yourself a lot of trouble. Because the Barbanel, aside from his own opinion, is an excellent summarizer of other people's opinions. Now, it's true, it's only up to the 15th century, because that's when he lived. Granted, that is true. But if you want somebody who's going to take you to the trouble and did it, and read everything and is an excellent summarizer, take a lot of stuff and put it to a short, pithy way, so uh, you got the Abarbanel. He's, he's the man. So that's the best cheater book. Let's put it that way. I repeat, obviously up to the end of the Middle Ages, up to the 15th century. And so, for example, here's a wonderful example, in my opinion, and this is how I'm connecting it with what uh, Sam was talking about. If you take the trouble... And I strongly recommend this in general. Uh, if you take the trouble to look at the Abarbanel on this week's Parsha, you'll see. And I have a nice addition. Uh, makes it easier. But he says, Hamara Hazel this vision of the ladder to Jacob, and he gives seven opinions. The first opinion is Chazal. This is very cute. And what he's trying to say is like this. Listen close to what I'm going to say. The Yeshiva Shem Be'ver, that's to enable you to stay a Shomber Shabbos <laughs> in an unfrom environment. You're going to go by loving. But the dream of the latter was to prevent you from Lakewood Syndrome, which means I'll go to Lovin, I'll be a Shomber Shabbos, I'll keep Tariq Mitzvahs. You know, how's it in Lovin Garti, but Tariq Mitzvah Shamarti. So then what do I need Israel for? Correct? Like I say, liquid center. If I have a lot of money and I can sit and learn all day long, uh, what do I talk and need Eretz Israel? Like the Ramam says. Now I know I have one or two people that email me. They're all very super Zionistic and, you know, they're offended by this. But it doesn't matter. That's what the Ramam holds. And others, or it seems to anyway. And uh, you understand, those thoughts are buying Yerushalayim. If this is a Malcolm Torah, you immerse yourself in Torah, really, all the kind of stuff. So, you don't need to be in Israel. Uh, wrong. So therefore, the Chazal, I'm, I'm quoting from the Barbanel. Chazal say, that, that uh, just when he went to Haran and came back, or something like that, God showed him a vision, which is, don't forget the uh, unique status of Eretz Yisrael. Everything I just said is wrong. There's something special about Eretz Yisrael. So, Dion Nevuah Shazos, Milas Eretz Yisrael, so, you want to live, be in Lovin. By the time you're finished, you'll be a millionaire. Maybe you don't have a longing to come back to Israel. Now, remember, Israel is a place with angels. No, it's a super Kedusha, super Ruchnius, and all that kind of stuff. So, that's just interesting, okay? Adeas Ishniah, the second opinion, he says, Pirker of Lezer. Arba. Malchios, that God was shown. There's also a very famous theme in Chazal that the, the, the dream of the latter was one of uh, telling teleological history. Notice he showed him the four kingdoms that would emerge and, and the fifth kingdom being the Jews. It's a kind of a variation of the story of Book of Daniel when you have, you know, the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar with the statue with the four parts followed by the fifth, or the four monsters in chapter seven followed by the fifth. And so he's showing them. You know what's going to happen over there in the future. The third opinion is, is, is uh, he says over here is uh, Ibn Ezra, 
right? Shasulam remembers in the Shama Ilyona Malcha that he completely intellectualizes and spiritualizes it. That the, the latter and all the rest of it is the human mind or soul and what it's capable of reaching. Okay? The the Nisham El Yonah and the Machshavah Zachachma. And in each one of these cases, this is the wonderful thing about the Barbanel. If you're turned on by any of these shots, go look it up yourself in the original. So go to the Ibn Ezra and look inside. Hadeh Ravis Rambat. Right? And uh, here's a classic argument of Maimonides versus Nachman. He's one of many. And... Um, I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit and say the Rambam says, in the murder book, now he says several things, and the Barbanel is wonderful because he picks up all three because he obviously knew the murder book by heart. He wrote a commentary on it when he criticized the Rambam on many points. So he was holding a murder book, and to the part that's no, the most no would be that, you know, did he see angels going up? Did he see people? Is a Malk an angel? Is a Malk a human being sent on a mission of some kind or another? Or perhaps I should say a superior human being. So the Rambam, not surprisingly, says, the Malchai Elohim in the Marnavukim, he says that they're superior human beings. Right? Especially Moshe Rabbeinu. So you see, a Sulam Mutsu Arts of Roshim Magoshim, that's a very good description of Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? Let me put it this way. Do you believe that Moses got the Torah? Yes. How did he do that? He said, well, he went up to Shemayim. Did he climb up Jack and the Beanstalk into heaven? No, it's expression. But in other words, it's not a fantasy. Moses, in some fashion or another, went to Shemayim, in some way or another. Maybe not the physical way, but in some way it happened. And so, Olim v'yordibob. Moshe went up, and Yordibob came down with the Torah. You know, the Rambam phrases it slightly different. That's basically the idea. Okay? That, uh, you know, as they get, so there are no angels with wings and that kind of stuff. Not to the Rambam. Uh, he talks about intelligences, which was an Aristotelian term back way back when. Uh, but not angels like we understand it. But rather, it's uh, people like Moshe Rabbeinu, the VM, the VAMS. And Moshe, a perfect example. And so Yaakov was vouchsafed, according to the Rambab, a vision of what the human being, in fact, especially his progeny, is capable of doing, which is they can uh, transcend and, and, and really shar shemaim, like I said before. Let me put it this way. If, you, if I asked you a question, which human being uh, penetrated the shar shemaim? Well, Moshe Rabbeinu, <laughs> right? Now, depending on who you are, if you get a kind of chassid, you probably say you're Rebbe, you know, Shar Shalayim. But everybody agrees, Moshe Rabbeinu did, right? And so, uh, and every Navi to some degree does that. That's what Nebu is. It's break-ins. It's, 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 the, it's the entranceway to going from the physical to the Shemayim, to the metaphysical. So that's how it does. The Ramban typically argues with that, and he said, no, he saw angels. No, the Ramban is always the guy who's arguing in the Rambam from a right-wing perspective, and always arguing against these... Um, spiritualizing and metaphorizing uh, kind of interpretations, and he insists on a much greater degree of literalness. It's weird about the Ramban, Ramban I mean, at least to me, and to many people, and I really uh, saw a heavy dose of this this past summer when I did that Shar HaGamul, um, which I told you it came out in a nice edition, so it attracted me to go through it more or less by Ian. Uh, I'm expecting to return that soon with one of my uh, eccentric Chavrusas, uh Let's just call him Abu Avigdor. And uh, you'll see that he's much more literalistic. And therefore, here also, he said he saw angels. And the whole idea was, okay, that um, Yaakov was being shown, I'll use a term that you'll be familiar with, Hashkacha Pratis. He showed everything that happens in the world is run by angels. Now, not they do, meaning as, as messengers of God. So that's nothing but a fancy way of saying 
everything is run directly by God. That makes sense. You're about to go to Lavan. You're going to get screwed over by a cheating father and all the rest of it. You should know that God is everywhere. Everything's at, from angels. Malchilim Olim B'yordim, excuse me, as he puts it over here, Hadea Revis, Hula Ramban, Atzmosh, Kosov, Sheriyom, Benavua, God showed him, Koshir Nasa, Baris Nasa, Ide Malachim, Bakob, Xeris Elyon. Everything is run, you know, it's it a figurative speech, but everything is run by a Malach who looks over here and says, Katz is about to go to Shoal. Should we let him go to Shoal or keep him away from Shoal? And they report to headquarters and God says, let him go to Shoal. Or not. Everything's run that way. And that will be a way of Yaakov understanding, as they say, that, you know, uh, uh, how should I put it? Uh, like it says in the right? That God says you'll be under my hashkacha, and Yaakov himself later on says, That's more or less how the Ramban uh, would understand it. And then uh, now I want to get to the, the the most interesting though, especially in regards to Hilchas Sammy Finkel. Uh, and that is the Barbanel. What he usually does is he presents a whole bunch of opinions, and he did a very good job of here, in my humble opinion, of doing the uh, classics up to the 15th century. And then he usually, as he does over here, presents his objections to the various interpretations and offers his own. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, listen to what he says, because <clears throat> he says the thing Mamish like Sam was saying. Venera Lilafarish, in my opinion, but Derechacheres. I think it's it's um, historically very fitting, in other words, very much shot oriented. Listen closely, okay? And and then out of the eight opinions he's including, seven of the others are one of his own. You, the reader, you get to choose which one makes the most sense to you, okay? Now I'll tell you out loud what he's saying, and then. Uh, and and then I, th- that's why it's fascinating in the, in the light of the conversation I had with him. Uh, and I'll tell you uh, how it fits in with this parsha. Yaakov, uh, how should I put it, was in a guilt trip. Okay. Here I'm going to open this up. <laughs> Listen closely. This, according to the Barmanel, and uh, what was the state of mind of Yaakov? So, is it depressed? Why? At the end of the day, he cheated his brother. Uh, he resorted to trickery. It was a lie. Ganevus uh, Das and all the rest of it. Now, I know the way of being Yashavit. I understand that. I'm just telling the other side. And uh, Yaakov, what happens as a result of this? Uh, you know, Esau wants to kill him. He's got to flee the country. He ends up broke, you know, Kibamakli of Artis He's a fugitive. He's hungry. He's asking God for food. Life kind of crashed down on him. And he's interpreting this, or at least he could interpret this, as a confirmation of a depression. I cheated my brother. I'm a liar. I'm no good. And I don't have any rights, really, to Israel. You know what I said? And I don't have any rights, uh, you know, uh, if I usurped the Bechorah, uh, then I don't have any right. I mean, that's the Palestinian argument. You know, those you're getting this in an underhanded way. 
uh, I don't know if I ever mentioned this before, but there's a remarkable Yonas uh, and on this, which I have highlighted. I've just pulled it out here in a second. And the Aristavash, right? In uh, the first volume. And Abish is always uh, uh, brilliantly original. I'm a big fan of his. Although, to tell you the truth, since the corona, I don't, you know, I'm not giving Shiram and Shul or anything like that. I'm, I'm using it a lot less. But I remember this. Listen closely. In a, he has these very long brushes, you know what I mean? That's his style. Very long. He spoke for eight hours, clearly. The one I'm asked was Sleepus. And in the course of this long business, he raises the following question, and that is, Yaakov got the bracha. So, I don't see it. Right? You know, and all the rest of it. The opposite, the Jews have been beaten up and have been persecuted for thousands of years. So, what's shot? And he goes on to say as follows. That the way the division worked out is Esav got him Olam Haza and Yaakov got Olam Haba. But the question is, why doesn't Yaakov also get Olam Haza? So, why are we Jews always getting stuck bad, screwed over in this world? And he said, oh, you should be better in that world. The whole point of the bracha Yitzhak gave him was you should be masliach in both worlds. Uh, are you trying to tell me that the, the bracha of Yitzhak, which was Kedusha, didn't work? goes on to suggest see this? Since it was through trickery and to a certain degree lying, the Yaakov Midoso MS, and Yaakov is supposed to be antithesis of that, it's supposed to be MS, Titan MS Yaakov, Shakulo Koshot, Lochain Lobar, Lochala Birchaso Kolkachabolam Hazet. The fact that it was done through trickery uh, weakens the case of, of Yaakov, and therefore, in a Hanami, the Bracha Taka was, uh, what shall I say? Uh, highly diluted. Okay, this is a whole discussion by itself, and you can do this at your Shabbos table or your Thanksgiving table, depending on who you are. Uh, how much of the Vigitin Lachal happened? Let me put it this way: Jews usually make a lot of money, but a lot of them don't. And Jews, do they uh, prosper in the world? They don't prosper in the world. We've had our share of Holocaust, after all. So it's a complicated business. But the Yaris Tavash is suggesting that uh, very interestingly. That because Yaakov did his underhanded way, uh, as he puts it over here, armor ukutsas kozov. You know, I get it. I know the story. Anochi, comma, esabacharecha. But come on. So, uh, consequently, you know, that weakened the bracha. Okay? Now, uh, Yaakov can't be unaware of this shot. And Yaakov is basically saying, my whole life fell apart on me. And uh, maybe I did wrong. Uh, maybe Benny Morris is right. Uh, maybe the Palestinians are the ones that have the right to the land, or Yeso. And so he says, and now I'm quoting the Barbano. Yaakov was scared to death. They might be murdered by Yeso. And he found himself uh, poor, either because Eliphaz took it like this story, or Stamazai, he left with no money. Uh, Yachid, and it's not here. He's alone. 
doesn't know anybody, in a friendless world. See, Abraham is trying to get into the mindset of Yaakov, right? So yes, he's fleeing, he's going north, he's going to Lovin, but he's, he's in a depressed state of mood. So Yaakov was already saying like this, why did I listen to Mother and Steal the Brachas? Why did I do that? I don't deserve this. I am illegitimately claiming the Brachas. Okay? Because, Because after, Exactly what Yaakov was afraid of when he sent to the mother, I'll get a klol and not a bracha. And the mother says, Which is a very ambiguous phrase. Is she saying that if Yaakov, that if your father finds out and curse anyone, I'll take the call on me? Or was she saying, uh, you know, from a, a, a moral philosophy perspective, yes, we're doing something underhanded, but I'm taking the responsibility for that. Kiloscha knows the call what you're doing. But in either case, it's it's a klolo. So in order to shlug this up, let's put it this way. If Yaakov would go into exile and be by Loan with the state of mind that I'm a thief and I'm uh, illegitimately claiming the brachas and I'm no good and all the rest of it, he would have folded like a house of cards by Loan. Loan would have eaten him up. And not only would Loan have skinned him alive, but he would probably become not from there. You understand? Not from there. After all, Loan piled all four of his daughters and concubines on him. And that's a good way, usually, of making somebody not from. <laughs> you get it? As like an ingenious way, so he had to, you know, slug all that to go against that. So therefore, God, in uh, arranged like especially we go like Rashi and he went to the Haran and he was all depressed. Then he came back or whatever, and he has this dream of the ladder. God arranged that he should come to Har Maria. And he sees a dream, which is a prophecy. The, the latter was clearly, the, the sulam is clearly a prophecy. And he saw Malachim Olim B'yordibo. He said, that's your children. You see? And you're the ones who are going to be Beis Olim and Shar Shamayim. You will have one day a Beis Amigash up here, and your descendants will get the Torah, which is basically penetrating the Shar Shamayim. So you will be the chosen people. And therefore, what you did, you're not subject to Klolo. Okay, and the God approved of him stealing the brachas. Okay, and uh, and that's basically the heart of it, which means that Yaakov, uh, because of the guilt uh, over the, the way he you know got to steal the brachas or deceived the father and all the rest of it. See, Yaakov had. Um, Self-doubt. Uh, do I have a right to any of this? Am I illegitimate? And, and is my misfortune uh, demonstrating that? And according to the Bible, God was telling me, he said, no, 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 don't feel like that. Because whatever happened, happened, but you were under the Hashkacha Pratis, and you got to go fulfill your destiny, and I'm behind you, right? You, you know, there's the Sulam Mutzav and it's in Jerusalem. One day, your descendants will build a temple here, and they'll have all these... Religious experiences and so on and so forth. You, you'll be a chosen people. Now, in the 20th century, uh, as we know, the uh, uh, well, let, let me rephrase this. So, what is Asaph's argument? Asaph's argument is you stole this from me and you have no right to anything. All right? 
uh, give no right to anything. Yaakov was feeling that, and God said, no, don't listen to Esau. In our time, um, you know, the Jews were, were, let's put it this way, those who were against Israel, those against all this, they say that the Jews um, had no right uh, to Palestine. The Zionists came and usurped everything. There was an indigenous population only living there. And uh, that was taken by foreign invaders from Europe and elsewhere. I mean, uh, as everybody knows, the Zionists. And indeed, today, uh, there are many Jews that buy into this, the BDS and so forth. They buy into this narrative. Uh, and Sam was writing to me back and forth, you know, let's put it this way. If you're a biblical person, things so say like this. Right or wrong, call or not call, like the Barbanel said, God showed him a vision. He says, you, you go, go on and do it. So don't worry what others think. That's one Mahalach. But what about not with that Mahalach? Uh, here it comes very interesting because the heart, let me say this. In my mind, this is where the Lovan story becomes very interesting. What happened to Lovan? What kind of character is Lovan in Six Parsha? And I might remind you, Lovan is our ancestor. There's no Jew who's not descended from Lovan. Lovan basically said like this. You have no rights to anything. Even though Yaakov worked his tail off, and, and uh, as we know in the story, he worked for 21 years, and he got ripped off by Lovan, and, all, and so on and so on and so forth, as we all know the story very well. What did Lovan say at the end? He says, you have no rights to anything. Everything you want belongs to me. And Lovan basically says, if not for divine intervention, I will kill you, because you have no right to anything. Now, that's just a lie. You understand? And Lovin doesn't mind staring him in the face because when you're engaged in a political argument, you just say whatever you want to say. The, the facts go out the window. I repeat, Lovin is, is a very interesting archetype. You know, the Gemara says, Ain't on a maze, pun of a You know, if I lend you money, you won't deny me straight in the face. Some will. The Gemara means most people won't. But some people, I could lend you money, and the minute later you say you didn't do anything. Now, the reason I mention this is because in the context of the Arab Israeli conflict, the most interesting part, as far as I'm concerned, from a Jewish perspective, is the Arabs deny the Jews of any shachas Israel whatsoever. If they say, well, listen, you used to be here, and, uh, you know, you got kicked out, whatever reasons, and now we're here, and we've got to work this in such a way that, you know, uh, you can be here a little bit, but we're in charge. I don't know, something along those lines. That's one thing. But from day one, the Arabs said like this, to give them love and argument. The Jews have no shaykhs Israel whatsoever. Uh, they never were here thousands of years ago. There was no temple. That's what Arafat used to say. right? And this guy, what's his name? Uh, Abu Mazen. He's a shmo. He says the same thing. He wrote a dissertation about it in college, I believe. And uh, the Jews have no shaykhs whatsoever. Uh, so that totally undermines their position. Yeah, because they're lying, they're doing a loving type thing. You understand? It's not like, uh, you know, we have a claim, you have a claim, and well, let's work this out, and we, and we want majority, or something like that. But rather, it's Kofra Kol. The uh, Arab position, and the Jews who are in the BDS, and all these other kind of movements, they're basically saying, there's no connection to Jewish people whatsoever as Israel. There is none. And, uh, therefore, that being the case, everything that comes out of it, the Zionist movement and everything else, is one big lie, and therefore it becomes a case of colonial usurpation. And 
like Yaakov, some people fall for this. You understand? They fall for this. And uh, it's unbelievable that it happens. Now, not everybody has Hashkacha practice. Not every person in the BDS is going to have a dream in the middle of the night that God's going to show Masul and Mutsav Arts of Rosh Hashanah. I get that. You understand? I understand that. But we have the story for to show you that such things happen. And you and I know enough history to know that if you're a Kofar, I call then it's not true. And so the rejection of the Jewish claim is based on the idea that Jews have nothing whatsoever to do with Israel. And everybody knows the Arab program is that every Jew has to get out. Every Jew. You know, maybe Mayor Sharm can say, not really. Not really. You know, uh, I'm doing these uh, lectures now, Saturday night. You probably don't notice. When Israel became a state in 48, so, you know, they split Jerusalem in half. That everybody knows. At that point, the notorious character, not Mayor Sharm, but the notorious character, Amram Blau, they were so anti-Israel, this whole question, maybe they should move a few blocks away not to live under the terrible Zionists. Move a few blocks away to Jordan. After all, Abdullah and the Jordanians held the eastern half of the city. Adraba, they would live in, uh, in uh, let's say, for example, the old city. And uh, these are the few families that in Torah held that Israel is beyond illegitimate. <laughs> beyond illegitimate. And this way, they live under the Arabs, the way they want to live. They'll have access to the Kotel. Because, you know, the Kotel was on the Jordanian side. And uh, fine. And to tell you the truth, from the pure Arab perspective, if they were thinking in purely political uh, Joseph Goebbels propaganda terms, they should have done it. Bring a dozen, two dozen, three dozen families. I don't know how big the tour character was at that time. Let them move over here. And they'll have nothing to do with the accursed Sionim. And so you have the Jewish side run by the Israelis and the Arab side... Uh, run by the uh, Jordanians and the from 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 the Torah cards that would live on the Arab side. It never happened. Why didn't it happen? Two reasons. First of all, you couldn't get the from guys to the Torah cards guys to really believe the Arabs won't kill them. And second, well, the Arabs didn't want it because that would sound like the Jews have some shaykh with Jerusalem and they weren't gurus that the Jews have any shaykh with Jerusalem. It's a, it's an interesting episode. You can look it up. Professor Menachem Freeman wrote an article about this long ago uh, in Hebrew, probably. Uh, so, in other words, the in, Yaakov's dream. So, this is me talking. Yaakov's dream, in which he's shown his special connection with Eretz Yisrael, and the fact he didn't steal the the uh, what shall I say, the birthright, which boils down to his legitimate rights to the land of Israel. He is shown this dream before he encounters Lovan, because once he encounters Lovan, he's going to be in an Arafat situation where. Yaakov has no connection with anything, and and uh, you know the history will be rewritten to totally exclude Yaakov out of the narrative, even to his face. Even after Yaakov, like I say, worked for Lovin for years and married his daughters and had uh, Lovin's grandchildren, all the rest of it, Lovin was prepared to kill everybody, right? Because yodi ra, and Lovin bikish lakesh akol, you know, uh, except it was divine intervention. You and I do not necessarily merit divine intervention. The state of Israel, on a day-to-day basis, may not merit divine intervention. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I'm just saying, you know, not like Yaakovina. Nobody's getting a nevuah. But um, the prepar- the, the uh, story of the latter, especially the way that Barbanel interprets it, which I think is very interesting, speaks to the heart, uh, in my mind, of the current arguments over the legitimacy of Israel. Now that Trump is out of office, so you're going to have the Democrats come back in. And they're going to be bringing a lot of this kind of uh, uh, thought. Because uh, 
for liberal Democrats, I'm talking on the left wing, you know, but as far as they're concerned, Israel's illegitimate. See, this is going to be the big problem. Now, I hope I'm wrong, and maybe I'm crazy. I would like to be crazy. This is how I read the tea leaves at the moment. Anyway, we will see. I've gone long enough. We'll see the way uh, the uh, political events develop in the United States in the next six or eight months. Uh, but in that regard, I think if you... Uh, now here's your assignment. Not only Sam, but everybody else. And Ledway, I just told you, look up this at Barbanel, and uh, you can look at Abishas too if you want. And... Uh, try to then interpret the story, the fascinating story of the latter uh, in this context, the way that Barbanel does, and see if that has any shakas to the current debates over legitimacy of Israel. Now, the Hasidim, by the way, have a completely different way of, of reading this. There's a great article by my favorite heretic, Louis Jacobs, back in England, where he is literally called all the Hasidic, classic Hasidic interpretations of Jacob's ladder, right? I forget exactly how it's called but something like that, where he goes through all the Hasidic classics, but there's a much more spiritualized interpretation. In light of uh, Sam's uh, aura today, uh, I am more drawn to the political uh, dimension of the Parsha, and I think this uh, offers a lot of food for thought and food for discussion. Anyway, have a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.